Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Big Honker Podcast. We appreciate that you're tuning in with us. This podcast is brought to you by the one and only Shin Gear. They're not just a waiter company anymore. They're expanding their line, uh, jackets, uh, a lot of cool stuff coming from Shin Gear. New bibs are coming out. I torture tested them all year long. So the boots uh, are out of this world, aren't they? Boots are fantastic. Yeah, like you're you're not gonna go wrong. Anything you purchase from Shin Gear, you're not gonna be disappointed. Top notch, five star <clears throat> company. Best customer service, as good a customer service as anyone else in the waterfowl industry. I'm not gonna say it's the best because there's a lot of good ones out there, but very, very good customer service. Everyone brags about it. You can check them out at shingear.com, get whatever you're looking for. Uh hunting season's coming up. So Check them out, shingear.com. We're also brought to you by Lucky Duck, maker of the best uh, A-frame blind that's out there right now, the 2 by 4 It's phenomenal. fits four grown men. It packs up nice and neat, and their spinners are out of this world, waterproof. You don't have to worry about it. If it takes a spill, uh, shake it out, dry it off, and put it back up and running. You can check them out, luckyduck.com, uh, whatever you're looking for, whether it be varmint or turkey or goose and duck, they can take care of you, luckyduck.com. We're also brought to you by our good friend, Alex Langbell, Gundog Outdoors. Uh, take care of that four-legged hunting buddy. He's got a field trauma kit that's got everything that you need to stop bleeding, warm up a dog, cool off a dog. Uh, it fits nice and neat in your truck, and you never know when disaster is going to strike. So We have one in every one of our vehicles. Every vehicle that's out here gets a field trauma kit. So um, He's got a quick-release system, goes onto your dog's collar, and got a little... Little lever you pull as soon as you're ready to send that. Dog. If your dog breaks, it could save his life. Could save a friendship too. So, <laughs> check them out, Gun Dog Outdoors. We're also brought to you by Pacific Calls, PacificCustomCalls.com. They've got their brand new turkey line out, the Kill Count. Uh, I've already got it. Uh, I've already got a couple notches on it. So, uh, great call. Use the promo code BHP25 saves twenty five percent off whatever you're going to get. Doesn't matter. Uh, goose duck call, crane call, turkey call. All the same. BHP 25, 25% off. And they've got the best Lester call that's out there right now. The BA Lester call. It's my favorite. PacificCustomCalls.com. Five months away from opening waterfowl season. Not too long. They will be at Ducks. Yes. May 5th, 5th, 6th, and 7th at Texas Motor Speedway. We will be there also with the boys from Moss. That's right. So come check them out and go to PacificCustomCalls.com. We are also, might as well talk about them, Ducks Unlimited. The reason ducks are in the skies today is because of the great work Ducks Unlimited has done. And, uh, you know, it's easier than ever to join, to be a member of Ducks Unlimited. Uh, They've got so many great organizations and so many ways for you to contribute. I have a great event coming up at Texas Motor Speedway, May 5th, 6th, and 7th. Uh, They had a limited booth space available. They're probably booked by now. But if you're interested, holler at them at DU at the headquarters. It's a great event. All the gun companies will be there. You can shoot guns. You can run your dogs. They're going to have the, uh, what's it called with the Perina where the dogs jump the distance? Right, yeah. What's the name of it? You don't know of the name of it either, yep. do you? Okay. The long jump. The long jump. The dog long jump, we'll call it. The That's dog right. Olympics will be there, and they will be doing that live, and I think it's being filmed for NBC Sports. Be very good. Come out May 5th, 6th, and 7th, Texas Motor Speedway. Come see us. We'll be at the Boss booth. Speaking of Boss, we are brought to you by Boss Shot Shells. The Boss Turkey, the Boss Tom line is out. It's selling right now. Get the number nines, ladies and gentlemen, 904 pellets. You're not going to be disappointed. Uh, waterfowl loads, copper-plated bismuth. They've got a brand-new War Chief out right now. Uh, Three five buffered. Yeah, I mean, it's just... Phenomenal, phenomenal stuff that they have come up with over there at Boss Shot Shells. You can call their uh, office. You can go to their website, BossShotShells.com. 
get your order in. Waterfowl season is coming up, so it's not too early to start stocking away. If you call an order from Boss, tell Brittany who will answer the phone. We said hello. That's right. Nice lady. Uh, Boss, good people all the way. They've rebranded the waterfowl industry when it comes to shotgun and ammo, and now turkeys, and now we have dove loads of Stanfield 9 coming out this summer. There's going to come a day where lead is they ban lead. All the way. Get ready for it. BossShotShells.com. We are also brought to you by Dive Bomb Industries. Get skinny. Um, start building that spread for this coming waterfowl season and make an appearance at Squad Fest. It's going to be here before we know it. July 27th, 28th, I, I think, believe. I think that is the day. I can double check right quick, but it'll be the third Squad Fest and every one of them has been a riot so far. Great time. They're going to have calling contests. They're going to have all sorts of stuff. Last year, they had dog launcher events. Uh, Squad Fest, July 28th and 29th. Two days. Friday St. Louis, Saturday. Missouri. At St. The- Louis, Missouri. But it is a great time. Come out July 28th, 29th to Squad Fest, the third Squad Fest, and we will be there. I will be there, and then uh, it's going to be a good time. Um, start stocking up on whatever you're going to need for this coming waterfowl season silhouette wise floaters they got them out too great company divebombindustries.com we're also brought to you by mossberg we shot the 940 all season long and it is a great shooting gun uh kid it handled the torture test of west texas sand so everything's oversized you know your waterfowl hunting it's cold most of the time so it's good to have oversized buttons and levers really really enjoyed shooting the 940 check them out at mossberg.com won't won't be disappointed we're also brought to you by the looking glass podcast go to their patreon account donate now and you can uh be a part of the debauchery never miss an episode do not listen to it with your kids logan and rebel are great guys they're truly truly funny gentlemen and uh you should head over to their patreon right now if you're a bourbon drinker most definitely they have a bourbon review each each episode Sometimes they review two or three bourbons. Have a good time. Check them out. Lookingglassduckclub.com. On Patreon. And we are also brought to you by Dirty Duck Coffee. If your coffee sucks, it is not the duck. It's how we start our day every single day out here. Missouri Boat Ride Blend is a great way to start our morning. They've got different different blends and varieties. So head over to DirtyDuckCoffee.com and you can get whatever it is that you are looking for whether it be the Missouri Boat Red Blend or just the High Velocity. But it's great coffee, and it's a great way to start your day. Also, we are brought to you by Double T British Kennels. Uh, Corey's got some great dogs. We had two this season, and they did all the work that we asked them to do. So if you're looking for a puppy, a started dog, finished dog, Corey's got a dog for you. Upland, waterfowl, whatever you want, family dog. All Brits. Yep. Very, very prim and proper. Cutie pies. They're They're good working dogs, though. So if you want a good dog for the house or if you want a working dog, Call Corey, Double T British Kennels, and uh, he can hook you up. We're also brought to you by Alpha Outdoor Specialties, maker of the Stanfield Stool uh, Machine Shop. If you've got an idea that you want to see come to fruition, get a hold of them. They can mock it up and and spit it out. So alphaoutdoorspecialties.com. Last but not least, we're brought to you by Stanfield Outfitters. It is not too late to book a dove hunt or waterfowl hunt. I've got uh, one weekend left that I can do a dove hunt, and then I've got room for some corporate hunts during the week. Anyways, give me a call. You can, for $10,000, you can bring 20 people out here for two days, two nights, lodging, meals, and dove hunt, and have a morning, afternoon, morning, and afternoon. Where else can you take 20 clients and for $10,000, 
let them have a good time. Anyways, it's Stan, Stan, stanfieldhunting.com. I've got some waterfowl dates. I've got, I think, four days left in November, and I've got about eight days left in December left, and i got some January. It's probably about 15 or 16 days still in January. Anyways, holler at us if you want to kill sandhill cranes, ducks, geese, whatever you want to do. Give us a call at stanfieldhunting.com. We don't have any turkey hunts left. I do have a few deer hunts left, though. I think I've got four deer hunts left if you're interested in shooting a deer. 130-inch whitetail, holler at us at stanfieldhunting.com or Nine four zero six five eight three one seven two. And yes, I do answer my own phone. If the phone's going to get answered at the lodge. It's going to be done by Jeff. Thank y'all. God bless y'all and have a great, great week. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, this episode of the podcast, we are joined by Nick Yaris. He was um, wrongfully convicted of a rape and murder. And he spent 23 years on death row, solitary confinement, and he was around some of the nation's most uh, heinous murderers and criminals that you can ever imagine. So uh, this is his story. We hope that you enjoy it, and we hope that you'll go check out his work. He's got a couple books out, uh, some different things. Um, check them out. They're on Amazon now. So please welcome Nick Yaris. Welcome to the Big Honker Podcast, brought to you by Dirty Duck Coffee. I'm Jeff Stanfield. If your coffee sucks, it's not the duck. I'm with the world-famous Andy Shaver. That's how I get my morning started every day. So, uh, skip all that. Listen, I am excited about this one. Um, yeah, we'll just dive into it. We got uh, Nick Harris on. Did I pronounce that right or I screw that up? You got it right. You did perfectly. All right, perfect. So your story is one of the craziest that I've ever heard. You were wrongfully in prison, wrongfully put on death row for a rape and murder that you did not commit. You spent 22 years there? Yes, sir. I've never even met the woman. It's really strange how I never even met the victim in this case. Now, so... Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were arrested uh, for traffic violations and you got in a fight with a cop. Is that correct? And then they they arrested you and then you yes, were sir. trying to basically uh, provide information for a case that you knew nothing about. But you were hoping that information would parlay into them giving you a lighter sentence, right? No, to let me out so I could run. Since, all right, so it begins like this. I was pulled over in a stolen car for going through a stop sign in Chester, Pennsylvania in December of 1981. The officer ripped me out of the car and started to manhandle me and I started to resist. Now, all I was trying to do is get him to stop choking me with his forearm initially and then he pulled his gun out. When he did, I reacted. Unfortunately, the gun went off. When that happened, the officer decided then 
to elaborate on this huge story about me attacking him, me trying to kill him and how he had to subdue me. So I was initially charged with this huge lie of um, attempted murder and kidnapping of a police officer. So they threw me in the Delaware County prison and I went through drug withdrawals on my own. And I unfortunately had a newspaper in my cell. And on the on the front page of the newspaper was the big mystery story of a woman being abducted and murdered out in Delaware and how the police were befuddled about it. So in my desperation, I decided to make up a lie to counter the lie of the police officer, thinking I could get out and I could just run, you know, because I didn't know any of, of how this was going to play out. I sincerely believed them when they said I was facing the rest of my life in jail at the age of 20. For fighting the cop. Yeah, for resisting arrest with that police gonna, officer. Were they going to charge you with attempted murder of a, or capital murder? Is that what they were trying to do? Uh, they were trying to te- they were trying to charge me with kidnapping of a police officer, attempted murder of that police officer, possession of his firearm, reckless endangerment. So I faced a total of life sentence if I was convicted of any of that. And I went back into my cell on that first night. And I just freaked out and lost my mind. I, I didn't know how to face that. Yeah. Now, what uh, what drugs were you on? You said you went into to to relapse uh, or you started sobering up. What all was in your system at that time? So I was I was injecting methamphetamine into my veins, and I was drinking, and I was taking barbiturate pills called Secondol, which was a heavy barbiturate. So. When I went through withdrawals, I went through the three days of detox without any help. It was brutal. And like I said, I had a stupid newspaper in my cell and the headlines kept taunting me and bothering me over and over. And I came up with this stupid idea that I could barter my way out of all this. Now, when you when you uh, just have a clean cut off of barbiturates, that can be life threatening, can it? Yeah, so that's why I went through all the the worst mental aspects of it because I was coming down off of the amphetamine, but I was also crashing off of the withdrawals from this, the barbiturates. And I was so desperate to try and get any kind of mental help. I broke down. Uh, I couldn't even function. But the strange thing is I, I just had this feeling if I could get out of there, I could get – it's such a desperate feeling. If I could just get out of there, I would be okay. That's all I kept saying to myself. Yeah. So what did you, uh, so tell us about the story you came up with. So I told the police that a man who had robbed me at gunpoint and rolled me up in a rug and put me in a pickup truck had told me about a murder that he'd done. And then in my thinking, I was already thinking the man was dead from a drug overdose, but I was given the wrong information. He was alive. It was his brother that died of the drug overdose. So when I went to the police and told them my bullshit story, they went ahead and found found out he's alive. And they said, well, obviously you did the murder. You're trying to come to us for help. We know that you did the murder and that you want to tell us about it. That's why you made the story up. And I was like, no, 
I made up a story because the officer lied against me. They said, no, the officer and you have nothing to do with this. It's you trying to tell us that you really killed that woman. And then they went into this crazy psychological thing saying that I went out and killed this poor woman because she looked like my girlfriend. Mm. I was like, but my 20 year old girlfriend don't even look like this lady. What are you talking about? Seems like a very weak argument on their part. How did all of this take, uh, how did this gain traction to where you were ultimately convicted for this, uh, this crime? I mean, cause you know, that, that, that just, so it doesn't I, seem like they had enough to do anything right on the surface. I know they had an inmate. They had an inmate who burglarized the prosecutor's home. His name was William Ryan, the prosecutor, and a man named Charles Catalino burglarized his home. He said that I confessed to him. That was their star witness, a man who was convicted of robbing the district attorney's house and said that in the cell next to me for one night, I confessed. So that's the, so their star witness was another so, inmate, basically. So how, so they, yep. And the other thing that be, I can, I can tell you this, this is the main factor I went to trial for those original charges against that police officer. His name was Benjamin Wright. His father was the former mayor of Chester. That's how he got the job. Officer Wright testified, and then I testified. It was my word against him. The jury only took 20 minutes to find me not guilty of all those charges, and that's what made the prosecutor so enraged that he had tried a case and lost. He went mental. He took over the prosecution for the murder case and started seeking the death penalty the very next week. Wow. So so he was more he was ashamed that he just lost the case. And this was his revenge tour was I might not have got you for your your uh, incident with the police officer, but I'm going to get you for this rape and murder. You can see you could look it up in the, in the Philadelphia area. He did the same thing to the mobster, Nicky Scarfo, when he tried a case against Nicky Scarfo. And Nicky Scarfo was acquitted. He did the same exact behavior, exploding in the courtroom and snapping out. His ego just couldn't take it. His name is Barry Gross. He was the uh, assistant district attorney in Delaware County. And I couldn't believe that this man got to take over the murder trial and then start seeking the death penalty so that they could death qualify the jury, hoping to make sure they got a conviction. Did, did you have so a I was given a three... Did you have a public defender? I had a man named Sam Stretton represent me for twelve hundred dollars of my inheritance money from my grandfather's will. So you had a that's all you I had an attorney that man. you paid, and so and he yes sir. had he done any criminal tri trials like this before, or was he just a general attorney, just a, like it does family law? He was a criminal. No, he was a criminal defense attorney. Unfortunately. He was running for senator as a Democrat in a Republican county, and that kept coming up as a, a point of interest to the court. And it just seemed so shallow that politics were taking over. Meanwhile, I wasn't allowed to have any kind of investigative help. Um, any of the test materials done on the serology at that time, we didn't have a chance to challenge it. And I was given a three-day trial because the judge started the trial on the 27th of June, informing the jury that he was aware of their biggest fear being them being trapped during the 4th of July holiday weekend. And he said, this shit's going to be over before Friday, I promise you. Wow. That's perfect storm of bullshit. Yeah, that's, and I mean. That's not a fair trial. No, it's not fair, but. 
you were not given access to, so you couldn't, your, your attorney could not conduct his own test with the, with the serology reports. It was, ba- None all of it, of it was just look, whatever the prosecutor He represented said. me in, sorry for no, interrupting no, no, you, but good. he represented me in the first trial. Sam Stratton represented me in the acquittal of the first charges against that officer and then took on the homicide trial, all for $1,500. He couldn't pay for anything out of his pocket and he wasn't getting any money from me. I had nothing. So so they, you go to trial and you hadn't even been to Delaware where this lady was, correct? Didn't know her. That's correct. I was home. All right, so my alibi was I paid my mother's phone bill. Remember back in the day, you used to have to go to the bank and pay the phone yes. bill. I went to the bank and I paid the bill at 3.05 p.m. I went back on a trolley car to my neighborhood from there and the woman was abducted at 4.05 p.m. from her work in Delaware, in the Tri-State Mall in Delaware, the state, 27 miles away from my home. There was no possible way I was at dinner with my mother and my sister when an argument started and I had to leave the house because my dad threw me out. I went across the street to a store owner who saw me in the rain and the snow that night and asked me what I was doing outside in that kind of weather. And she was an alibi witness as well. What time was this take The place? police said it was about 4.30, 4.45 when I was at the store. So common fucking sense woman tells named- you that this is not right. Right. But at the same time, you got to understand something. They showed that jury pictures of that woman laid out on the autopsy table with six stab wounds. And then they showed her with her husband on the stand in a beautiful portrait and made that man cry. And then the jury couldn't look at me no more. That that This is crazy. Look, it was so horrible. At one point, the courthouse got struck by lightning. It was a beautiful sunny day. I'm sitting there. They just found me guilty of all these charges. Nobody could look at me. And the courthouse got struck by a bolt of light and knocked all the power out. They took me upstairs and put me in this big room and sat me there. And I I kept hearing this voice tell me, go back down there and look them in the eye. Like, don't. I couldn't put my head down. I wasn't ashamed. I I had to go in the courtroom and, and look at the judge and say, how can you do this to me? You can't even look me in the face. You're about to sentence me to die. Yeah. What is it? Was there a moment in this trial where you knew like I'm fucked? Like when the husband broke down and cried and could you tell in the jury's demeanor, like this is not going to go my way. It it was a photograph of the little boys finding the victim. Look, two little boys found Mrs. Craig laying in the snow. They thought it was a mannequin. So one of them went up to the mannequin to kick the snow off its face to see if it was a male mannequin or a female mannequin. And they freaked out. Mm -hmm. The two little boys' footsteps right next to her were black. Now, the whole photograph was white and black, they said, so it wouldn't inflame the passion of the jury. All around the body, initially, the little children's footprints was real dark. And then each of them ran on either side of her body away from her. And it looked like the angel's wings laying on the ground. When they showed that to the jury, the jury looked at me and then they all put their head down like they was never going to look me in the face again. And that was on my second day of the trial. That's that's I still cannot get over someone not having enough common sense to say the timeline does 405 and 437. 
and 320 he was at the bank so you i mean that to, that's what wears yep. me out about stuff like this common fucking sense from the policeman's point of view should never went to trial someone in the police uh, he, some, yeah but he uh, this detective Randy Martin got up on the stand and said that he drove the route and it was pro- and it was possible for me to go do all this stuff they didn't make him make a time chart or nothing you have to understand something too President Reagan got shot by John W. Hinckley. Anybody charged with a psychological crime in court at that time was getting trounced. So it was just, it was more the the politics of the time. Oh my God, yes. Anybody charged with any kind of psychological crime at that time, right after the president got shot by somebody trying to impress an actress, it was no mercy. Because John W. Hinckley didn't go to prison, did he? Mm. He went to a hospital. And then they started changing the law so you cannot be found not guilty by reason of insanity. And anybody charged with a psychological crime, there was no mercy. You were getting put down. Now, when when the initial verdict comes out and they find you guilty and they tell you you're going to you're going to death row, what is that moment like? As somebody that did not do this, you knew you were innocent, and I'm, it's got to just be this helpless feeling of nobody is listening. No, to me. I was so furious. Nobody could look, Andy. Nobody could look me in the face, brother. I challenged everybody in the room to look at me, man. I'm like, how can you do this? How can you do this to me? I'm only 21 years old, Mister. Like I didn't kill anybody. You know I didn't kill anybody. But how can you sentence me to die and you can't even look me in the face, Mister? That's what I kept saying to him. So he got angry at me and asked me if I was finished. And I said, yes, sir, you could go to hell. But that's all they put in the newspaper. Defiant death row prisoner tells judge to go to hell. That wasn't my statement. Right. You're saying treat me like a human being and let's look at this. Let's look at this case. And I can't believe that the judge would start this trial off by saying, you'll be done by the 4th of July. Don't worry. If you oh, get yeah. picked for the jury, that you'll be you'll be done. That was a big deal for him. That's bullshit. Because I mean, now all yep. of a sudden, you know, everybody's rushing this shit. Why wouldn't they have just postponed the thing until after the Fourth of July? That would have made more sense, wouldn't it have? No, that it's very clever what they do. If you pick a trial to start before Christmas or a major holiday, the jury's more likely to get a verdict together and get out of there. It's very clever what they do. Right. Right. So so they were pushing for this to be before the fourth because they knew it would. It would, oh, yeah. it would create this deadline in the jury's mind. I had just been found not guilty only a month and a half before this. Yeah. For the original charges. So what is your first day on death row like? Is it is it a terrible experience or how how is it all set up? Like are you do you have a cell by yourself on death row? It was so old and long ago, this is how it went. They took all the other prisoners off the bus. Then four guys came in with riot shields over their face with heavy uh, body armor. They ripped me out of my chair, drugged me off the bus, threw me up against the wall, and a lieutenant came up to me and started telling me that I was a dead man, and dead men were not allowed to speak in his unit. And when I made the mistake of saying yes, sir, to what he had just spoken to, I broke the rule, didn't I? Yeah. So he said... 30 seconds, and he fed me to the officers for 30 seconds, and they had 30 seconds to inflict as much pain on me as they could. Then they took me in the building, they put me in my cell, and a nurse came up to my cell with an officer, 
and he, she had a clipboard. And she began explaining to me that if I had any medical issues, how to fill out a DC-138 medical request slip to see a member of their staff. And I stood there silently willing this lady to look at me in the face, but she wouldn't look at me. So the officer kept saying, inmate makes no comment, inmate makes no comment. And they just walked away like it was routine. Jesus. What all, what all in this initial 30 second beating? I mean, is it just the, the billy clubs are out and fists flying? Like what is, what's that like? They got riot sticks. They're oak riot sticks. So they beat you from the back of your legs to the front. And then I took one good shot to the head and it knocked me all kind of woozy and it busted open my face real good. And then they kicked me when I was down. So you go into death row already just beat to a pulp. And then spent the next two years of my life in total silence. I got beaten again for singing happy birthday on my 22nd birthday. Hmm. Two years of total silence. Two years of never being allowed to speak in my cell. They come in, and this is how it goes. They they come to your cell. They say, you violated the rule. Then they line up with four officers, and a nurse comes over, and she puts on a, a military helmet, a flak jack, and then she waits for them to rush in and knock you to the ground, and she runs in with a needle full of Thorazine and stabs you in the ass with it. And if that didn't uh, work with taking a week of your life away where you're just drooling like an idiot and you can't talk to nobody, you go then, and if you violate the rule again, they would put you in the glass bubble where it was 24 hours a day with the light on and a 15-minute head count every 15 minutes to break you. Now, what's a 15-minute head count? What is that? You're going to be on your feet every 15 minutes oh. until you can't take it no more. So it's psychological warfare every single day of your life. Yeah, it was, Huntington State Prison in Pennsylvania was the only prison condemned by the United Nations for its active practices of torture. Now, I lived on a unit that had a, a survival rate of only five years on average. I ended up spending 12. Let's, I'm going I'm to change this up a little bit because you're an innocent man. But majority of those people there are not innocent people. And they did hein heinous crimes. And, yep. and and nobody deserves to be tortured, but that I'm a firm believer that if you get a death sentence, that they ought to put you to sleep the next day. Now you're the reason for why him. that's that's you're the reason why we have appeals, and you were wrongly convicted, and it's a wrong deal. And it, from from the get go, they you should never even been in this part. The cops and everyone should be liable for this because this is a bullshit deal they did to you, but. I don't want to come across as that death row isn't for people that don't deserve to be there. Cause most of the people that you knew in there deserve to be there. Did you have some people next? To I you? used to think like you though, uh -huh. Jeff, I swear to God, but guess what? There's a worse punishment than death row. It's called the wheel. The wheel never ends, man. I asked to be executed rather than to stay there, man. Right. I would rather be executed than spend my life in misery doing a life sentence. That's the worst thing you could do to a human being because they have no hope and they got to deal with the next crop of killers coming in the door over and over. But you weren't one of Trust those guys. Me when I tell you, brother. But you weren't one of those guys. I know, but you got to understand that, yeah, but them hideous creatures that you see that do all that horrible shit, leave them in there on the wheel. Don't put them to death. That's too. That's, that's taking them out. And they make a, a mockery of it. 
the the victim's family never usually gets any kind of justice. No, leave them in there to rot, man. I'm okay with that. So what about some of the people around you? Did you deal with some really weird fuckers? Oh, man. Yeah, the real Buffalo Bill was my next-door neighbor, wasn't what he? What is the real Buffalo His Bill? His name was Gary. The real Buffalo Bill was named Gary Heidnick. He abducted six black women in Philadelphia, and he put them in a pit. He electrocuted one of them and fed her to the other survivors, Damn. man. Mm, fuck. And he would tell you all about it. Jay Schrader. Jay Sh oh, yeah, not only tell you about it, but boasted about it whenever the power went out. He would put on this weird performance where he would act out the victims crying out and his overall theory of how he had to build a superior master race by using these black women and all this sick shit. And if you kicked on your door to drown him out or flushed your toilet to drown him out, the guards came and sprayed you in the face with pepper spray. Why? Because they want you to be tortured by Gary. Oh, we're going to put you next to Gary and see how long you last. And I lasted three years next to Gary before they put him to death. Do you ever tell him, like, dude, just shut the fuck up. I don't want to hear this. Just shut up. I whooped his ass. I did everything, man. Come really? on. It don't matter. It doesn't matter. He just keeps yeah, going. Yeah, I whooped his ass. A lot of people whoop. Look, if you're that sick and disgusting, you're getting an ass whooping by a lot of people. But he didn't care. You want to know what broke yeah. him? What broke him? His interracial daughter came out of nowhere at the last minute. Oh, yeah. Gary broke down in the death chamber when he saw his beautiful interracial child. Yeah, wow. man. She forgave him and it killed him. And she told him that she loved him and it killed him. All that racist bullshit he was spewing just died on the spot. Really? I'm reading about him. Yep. He, was a, he was a damn nurse. Yeah, he was. Gary Heidnick in Philadelphia was a... Uh, Convicted of uh, abducting black women in the, in the 70s and 80s. And then he made money in prison from stock trading, got out, bought himself a, a, a Rolls Royce and put a Cadillac engine in it and then went around abducting women in it. What a fucked up person, boy. So he gets out, but yep. no, not Nick. No, he gets put to death. They put him to death finally. They put him down. That was the first time. He, just, right. he asked to die. What, what did... He volunteered because... He couldn't take it no more. What did uh? So he would rape these women and then he would slaughter them. Yeah, man, all kind of sick shit. So Gary had this notion that he was like he was he was going to be God's chosen and he was going to create this like the shit that he would spew. Man, it was sick. I got so sick. Look, I, I'm sorry, but. At one point, I got so sick of him, I told Gary, if he did that shit one more time to me while I was on his pod, I was going to stomp the bullshit out of him. He didn't care. And I kept my word, too. Where do you have an interaction with Gary? Like, is there a common area? Every day on the pod. Yeah, there's a common area on that pod in Pittsburgh Penitentiary where I was. That's why I wrote the book Monsters and Mad Men, because I wrote a book initially called Seven Days to Live, but... If I would have started talking about Gary and all the crazy shit he was doing, it would have ruined that book. Really? So I had to save that whole book until I wrote a book called Monsters and Mad Men in 2015 because it was about the first execution in Pennsylvania history with an actual meek, mild, apologetic Christian who really was sorry for killing his best childhood friend 
and th- th- his name was Keith Zettelmeyer. When Gary saw the attention that was given to Keith for asking to be executed, that's why he wanted some attention. He decided he was going to be next. Now, what happened with Keith? Crazy, I don't know man. about this guy. Well, he, he killed his childhood right, best Keith, friend? Keith Zettelmeyer lived in, in uh, central Pennsylvania. He was doing burglaries. Him and his friend got caught. His friend turned state's evidence on him. He went down to the river with his friend and shot him in the back of the head. Mm-hmm. Now, this is somebody that in other walks of life is the most meek, mild person you ever would have known. And I never saw anybody throw themselves into the Lord's arms and beg for forgiveness the way Keith did. He was pious. He was humble. You could never get an argument from him. He was always sorry. Even the victim's mother wanted to spare his life for knowing that Keith wasn't evil, that he was actually a good Christian who had sought forgiveness, but the state had other plans. So Keith asked to be executed because they broke his hip and he couldn't take it no more. And I was in a unit where guys were being assaulted all the time and Keith couldn't take it. So even though Keith was this mild-mannered kid and never caused any problems, he's still going to catch a beating. Yeah, it's not only a beating, but sexual abuse and everything on that unit because it was no control. Sexual abuse from other inmates or from guards? He had a bad hip. He couldn't fight. Yeah, yeah, from other inmates. What other other guys did you have on there? Did you have any serial killers on there besides the Buffalo Bill guy? Yeah, so Arthur Bomar was one of the first black uh, convicted serial killers I was on death row with Arthur, and I was also on death row with Jay Schrader, the serial killer who ground his girlfriend up into meatballs and fed her to her parents. Oh, oh my God. God almighty. So, like, you're oh. you're around yeah, just I know. some of the darkest individuals that have ever walked this earth. Yeah, I've been stabbed up seven times, had all kind of fights with them. They used to make us gladiator against them. So in my cell, I would be sitting there and the guards would come by and just pull me out, put me in the exercise cage and make me fight somebody. So do they do it for their own entertainment? Yes. And betting. It was a way to stop the racist tension between the black guards and the white guards. So, so each would each race of guards have their own fighter. So the black guards would have the fighter that was going to represent them, and then you would represent the white guards. Is that nope. how it worked? Opposite. Opposite. The two black guards would walk down the block and pick out a white boy, and then the two black guards, uh, you know, the two white guards would pick out a black inmate. So, I had to fight a guy that was giant and. He actually held the family hostage after killing a store owner by first putting a gun in the baby's mouth. Then when the man complained to the police about that, he came back and blew his head off. Mm. Then he took a family hostage and held them hostage for fast food. And it wasn't until they gave him McDonald's hamburgers that they let the family go. Damn. Jesus. And you had to fight this guy. Monster of a man. It was the first. Yes, the first one I had to fight, and I had to dislocate his elbow, I mean his ankle, and then go to work on his face with my elbows because I'm sorry, but I promised my mom I was coming home. 
Yeah. I don't care what they did to me. I was I was coming home. What is uh when do do the guards just come in after somebody's unconscious or how how is this fight deemed over? You got five minutes. Five it's minutes. It's five minutes. All right. So the lieutenant wouldn't be on the block on the lieutenant on the weekend on Sunday. He would have to go out in general population. That meant that there was only a sergeant and regular guards on the block, and this sergeant that was doing it, he eventually got convicted for the Abu Ghraib scandal out in Iraq where he was stacking the prisoners up and all that. Remember that? Yeah. Yeah, well, he was my block officer. So they would just wait until the lieutenant left on a Sunday, and then they'd go grab like five or six guys and line them up and wait your turn. Get in the cage, fight it out. You come out on top, you get a, a break. If you come out on the bottom, you're going to get kicked on the way in. Motherfucker. So uh, let's let's talk about the, the after prison. How long did you get before when this DNA started coming out? So I was the very first man to seek DNA testing from prison in 1988. Unfortunately for me, because I escaped from prison whoa, 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 in 1985 and was on the FBI's okay, most wanted. Story. The... <laughs> How'd you get out? <laughs> All right. All right. So in 1985, I was being given a new hearing for a possible new trial and I was being transported to court. We stopped to use the toilet on February 15th, 1985, the coldest night of the year. And the officer went in the toilet with me and watched me urinate, standing there holding the door for me, being 60-some years old. He had a bladder, he said, the size of a pea, and he had to go. So he made a decision to let me come out of the toilet on my own and go back to the car. Now, it's pitch dark. It's already 6 p.m. I go running back to the car, and the officer had his back to me smoking a cigarette, thinking I overpowered his officer partner, he pulled out his gun and tried to blow me away. So I just started running. I mean, that I mean, you know, how far did you get? Oh, I got away. I, I did the smart thing first. I ran a hundred yards in a circle, came up right behind their cop car and just laid on the ground, knowing that they ain't going to be looking for me at the back of the cop car. Then I waited until everything started going like a little quiet. And I, I hid behind a police station for a couple hours. Then Somebody saw me coming out of there and a helicopter took over and started chasing me. So I had a helicopter chase me for five hours before I finally How got away. How did you finally get away? What, what was the break of the case? I broke through a fence, slid down a giant hill in the snow, ended up on railroad tracks, and then I walked for five miles to a place called Fraser, Pennsylvania, where there was one car in the, in the train parking lot, a 65 green Mustang. I walked over, there was a screwdriver in it and it just started <laughs> right up. It was like it was meant to be. I drove to my sister's house. She had just gotten married. She gave me a hundred dollars, a ski cap for the Philadelphia Eagles team and some bandages for me and then sent me on my way. I drove to New York City I was there in a flop house for the next couple of days, picking all of the threads out of my skin. Like it was horrible, man. And the crazy thing was on my first day out, I walked around New York and I kept looking at myself and I had all these scratches all over me from running through the woods without care, you know? 
and I saw this gay hair salon with these two men inside of it standing there talking. And for some reason, it just came to me. I burst in the door and pretended that my boyfriend had been beating me up and would they please help me? And they did everything. Like Andy, they dyed my hair, they (laughs) permed it. They put makeup on me. They called their friend who was an optometrist and got me a pair of free eyeglasses and said that this boy would never find me now. (laughs) I was like, oh my God. Where'd you go? Did you stay in New York? <laughs> I went to the. No, I, I stole a man's fur coat in a in a uh, restaurant that had his wallet in it, and I went to his house in Florida. I burglarized his house while he was in New York, and then I tried to get out of the country, but I knew I couldn't do this. It was too hard, man. So, I called my father and I told him to tell the FBI where I was, and I went back. They say it's a hard, hard work on the run. It's so mentally degrading because, look, at one point I met this girl and we hooked up at her mom's business on a strip mall. And then she wanted me to come to her house the next day. So I thought, you know, I'm going to go pick the girl up. We're going to go have honey time again. But shit, it was a it was a dinner invite. And I'm sitting there now on the run from death row having dinner with a family that consisted of two like 20 year old daughters somewhere around there and mom and her boyfriend, mom's boyfriend. And she loved me so much when the fuck, when the police found out who I was later on, she said, well, that's all right because he's still the politest, nicest boy. My daughter ever brought home. <laughs> he's got manners. <laughs> so, I mean, so you go back to prison. Crazy. And then what? Uh, but first they put me on death row in Florida. Oh, God, man. And I end up right next to the death chamber and asshole Ted Bundy. So he tried to sell me on the idea that he could save me from extradition and all this shit. So he signed us both up for the law library. I go out there and he's got his foot propped up on the damn stool inside of a little individual cage. And then I would be locked into a cage next to him. And he's trying to do that salesmanship. To me, I'm like, whoa, 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 Teddy, Teddy, calm down. I don't get off on killing little children and thinking it's my bad mommy. Fuck you. He went crazy on me. He started spitting at me. And he started screaming at me when all these biblical verses about all this shit that God was going to. I was like, man, you're, you lost your mind. So I'm glad he kicked off because the guards got all angry and whooped his ass they and did. drug him out of there. So beat his ass. Yeah. And then the next seven months, I had to listen to his nasty ass and events. No matter what conversation we had going on, he had something to say. So how so. does that work? You can you can start up with conversations with guys next to you, and, and, and it travels well enough that you can hear everybody that's on the block? Yeah, through the ventilation. Yeah, because it, in Stark, Florida, on the East Unit, it was double-doored. Look, the place was so dangerous, there was not a single book of matches left in that prison because they were making electric shotguns and blowing each other's heads off in that Damn. jail. <clears throat> yeah, man, a book of matches back in the day with the flint and the striker and all that and the sulfur and and pebbles and glass. And you put it into a metal pipe and you plug in your extension cord to one, put it around the other side. And then when someone walks past your cell, you ignite it yeah. by plugging that in, don't you? And it blows people's Jeez. heads off. That's crazy. Uh, I. 
How how long when you're finally found innocent and you're let go? How long does it take you to kind of get back into normal society? Because you've been you've been a with the worst no of the worst, thing. literally the worst guys that have ever walked this planet. You're you're next door to them. How can you ever turn that switch off? Oh, it, it's. I gave myself such a brilliant education that when I went home in less than only 10 months of being free, I was in England speaking to Parliament. I did all speeches to France and to Sweden, Italy. I was going to use my education to use uh, an economic embargo against Pennsylvania to make them give up the death penalty because I met a couple guys in there that were innocent and I promised them I would fight for them. So I changed the dynamics of my whole life by not sitting there thinking about being on death row. That was just something that happened to me. And I was clever enough to come up with a good education while I was in prison. I quit counting books after I got the 9,400 books. I did six years of study from psychology courses at university. I made every effort so that if I ever did get my freedom back, I wouldn't be mentally destroyed. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Just from the physical, just from the mental warfare that you endure every single day. So what would you do? You would just, you just read and read and read and read. What, I mean, was it all crime related on how to uh, find your innocence or what were we looking at? No. So I fell in love with all of the best classics and, I had a routine where I would probably read like three different books a day. So I could knock off a 225 page novel in about three hours. So it was no problem after a while to read and read and read. But I loved using different parts of the day for different literature. Like I I wanted to read a comedy in the morning. I, I wanted to take a break and do spy novels in the afternoon and get lost in them. And then I would read beautiful works of art late in the evening, like Walt Whitman and others, and just so beautiful, you know? And I decided, look, at one point after I escaped, I had 105 years plus the death penalty. I am not going anywhere. My life is over. There wasn't no DNA back then. I became the first guy in America to seek DNA testing. But before then, I was doomed. And I lived brilliantly because I was happy. As happy as you could be. Yeah, because I had decided if this was the if this was the place God wanted me to be, who was I to question God? So when when you That's a leap of faith. You're in you're in prison and you're with uh you're with Bundy. Bundy Bundy dies, you leave Florida. Do you go back to Philadelphia or do you stay in Florida? Yeah, I go back I go back to Pennsylvania and I become the first guy in American history to seek DNA testing in February of 1988, and they then spent the next 15 years trying their best to destroy all the evidence and murder okay. me. Once, how, when did you finally get your breakthrough on this? In 2002, after my little brother died, I wrote a letter to the court dismissing my lawyers and asking to die. I couldn't take it no more. I had been stricken with hepatitis C. They blinded me in my cell with the medication. And Jeff, I just decided I couldn't take it no more, man. So I wrote a letter to the Philadelphia Federal Court and asked to be executed. And instead, I got the DNA testing finally done. 
In February of 19 and 2003, they got the results from the murderer's gloves that were hidden at my trial. And then in July of 2003, they got spermatozoa DNA results from two different men that didn't match me. And it still took them another eight months to let me free after okay, that. So you, do you get a letter or did someone come and tell you that we're going to let you out today and they just let you out? Oh, no, they botched my release, man. So it took them a long time to decide if they were going to let me go or not because I was the monster that escaped. So on December 16th, after a week of telling me that I was going to go free in January of six, uh, 16th, 2004, they came to my cell at 8 o'clock in the morning. And I thought I was gone. They drove me across the prison compound got up to the gates, the first gate opened up, and then they said, no, he ain't allowed to leave. And they stopped the damn van. And they, I could see my parents outside waving at me. I could see the press, everything. And they said, no, the paperwork's not done. He ain't going home. So they took me back to prison that day. And I sat in this big room. I was kind of freaking out. And they said, look, it's not us. It's the state of Florida needs to have your paperwork done or they're not going to let you go. They're still claiming that you owe them 35 years down there, but we're getting a lawyer down there to see if they can get you out today. So I sat in this big room with a Baptist minister by the name of Johnson, and he stood watch over me and protected me from myself as much as anyone else. And I had a beautiful conversation with this man while I waited to go free, you know, really deep. And did they get called? Did you get a call that day to let you go? So at 1.30 PM that day, they came and said, the paperwork's done. You can go home. So they didn't put me in the van no more. They walked me out the front doors and my mom and dad was standing there. And I couldn't believe how small they were, you know? And then I walked up to the microphones assembled for the press. And I simply said, there are two men in the prison behind me that are innocent. Can someone please come and help them? And then I just walked away. So you, you, you go back to regular life or whatever you thought would be regular life. My question is, I'm, ne I'm usually not for people being able to sue courts and peers and all this stuff, but... I would think that the police department that botched your case in the first place, you'd have a lawsuit against. Yeah, I had, I did file a lawsuit against them and I had a lawyer named Jack Beavers represent me. So he got a third of the money. Then I, I was living at England at the time I got the settlement. So I got half of that. And then my wife got half of that when I had to leave her cause she was abusive. So I ended up in total with about $700,000 for what they did to me for 23 years of solitary confinement. Is what your paycheck was. That's what my paycheck was. And I, and I knew that that was pity money because I could do better for myself by helping other people with what I went through. Like, I, I really believe this. This is something. But God saved my life by sending me to death row. Both my brothers and all 26 of my childhood friends are dead. From the, from the all life you were living. dead. From, from Philadelphia, 500 murders a year, man. Philly is so hard. Where I live, everything was just chaos with drugs and guns and violence, right? So 
both my brothers are dead and all my childhood friends are dead. And the only way I survived is God protected me and sent me to death row, they, not prison, because I would have been dead in are, prison. Are, he put me in the one place I could grow are, up. Are they all dead from drugs and gun violence? Is that what you're saying? Gangs and shit? Yeah. So just that where it's at. Yeah. Every one of them's dead from drugs or or violence. The the police officers that charged you with that murder, even though that timeline was there, is there any way they can go back and do anything to them? Are they all dead and gone now? No. No. So the la the last ones that were working still there was a detective, David Pfeiffer. He was the man that made off with evidence in 1989 that was uh, well-preserved spermatozoa. He got away with destroying the evidence to try to murder me. He kept it in his desk for three years. Look, they were terrified of me getting out. You got to understand, this is a very small county, and these people knew that they were wrong to do what they did to me, so they were terrified of me. They thought I, they actually sent a detective to the jail and wanted to know where I was going to live if I got out. And I was like, what do you care where I'm going to live? I don't think about mm -hmm. you. I don't care about what you did to me. But they couldn't believe that I wasn't going to get out and kill them. That's because they knew they was wrong what right. they did to me. Did you, <clears throat> have you forgiven them? Or is this something that you just can't do in your heart? Because, I mean, you know, you, you've, you use the Andy, kindness approach. Andy, all the jury... Andy, all the jury members that sentenced me to die have already died. There you go. God struck the courthouse with a bolt of lightning, man. Who am I to need to do anything? I really believe in God so much. I recently gave away my RV and everything I own, and I moved back to England, man. I don't, I don't have any fears. I swear to God, God is so beautiful and alive. If you open your heart to God, God will show you the truth. That's amazing, an amazing conviction. I'm you telling have. you're out there. So you live in England now. I live in England right now. I'm, I'm actually given the blessing of staying on my ex father-in-law. So how has that been? Beautiful. Cause this man is so lovely. Me and him was best friends when I was married to his daughter, and it ain't got nothing to do with him what happened to me and his daughter. I wasn't disrespectful to his child. She just simply left me for another man, right? So we never stopped being best friends. When I came back to England, he said, you come to my door, I'll feed you and take care of you until yeah. you can get a place of your own. Wow. Um, when... 22 years that's how how close were you to the death penalty did they ever have a date set for you for your execution i came as close as i i probably came as close as 90 days when you write your letter and you ask to be executed like keith did or gary heidnick did it they don't take jump long on the ball like okay he, he's ready to go let's do it oh yeah because they want yeah because they want to get that going at that time they needed volunteers. Pennsylvania, since 1963, only put three men to death, and all three of them were volunteers. They have never successfully Why? killed anybody. Because it's an illusion. Right now, there's still over 200 men on death row, but they'll still put someone on death row, in theory. But there's a lie to that victim's family, because 
it would take them 25 years to kill somebody at one a month. This is why I'm against the death penalty also because it's a waste of the victim's time to believe that they're going to get some justice out of that crap. And the reality is there's a much worse thing that person can experience in prison than being on death row, protected 24 hours a day and given their television. Man, put their ass to work in prison and make them go ahead and deal with the rest of the crazies out there, right? Put them in general population. You were afraid of going to general population. Look, my big, because I was going to, yeah, because if I was in general population, some idiot was going to challenge me. Somebody was going to attack me or I was going to have to kill somebody and I would have never gotten out. That's why I know God protected me. Yep, kept me in protective custody for 23 years. That means I spent 8,057 days in solitary confinement. Your mind has to be so strong to overcome all of that. I mean, you've got to be one of the most mentally strong individuals ever. I promise you I am because recently I just went through a whole lot of things and nothing bothers me because I realized something. God gave me a blessing that I can help people not kill themselves, Andy. Since I did the Joe Rogan podcast, I've saved about 7,000 people from killing themselves, sir. And if that's my blessing in life, you think about it. What a huge gift that is, right? And now I go around the world. I wrote a book called The Kindness Approach. I go around the world helping people not kill themselves, get off of drugs, stop fucking their lives up. What a huge blessing. All right, I had to pay a terrible toe. And I've been through, I've been pushed through it a lot, right? Right now I got CTE brain injury, or I'm suffering. I got a lot of things I gotta overcome, but I still got a gift. How could I knock that? Now my mother taught me a lesson. She said, when you pray, you pray for good because God is good. So you so you're experiencing CTE now from all of the beatings that you received. What is it is is it fogginess? What are, what are yeah. the symptoms that you're experiencing? Um I have night terrors. I also flipped the car over last year and got badly injured. My dogs got thrown out the front window and everything. So it's like you ever stood on a corner of a building and you look up and there's an obstruction over your eyes so you can see mm-hmm. almost all of the sky? And well, I got that going on in my left eye and I got this thing where I keep waking up in rage and I have to have a reminder on my phone that says, Nick, you're a nice man. You have a brain injury, calm down. This is why these NFL players kill themselves. They ain't built for yeah. this like I am. So you so you're having mood swings, your vision is impaired, and it just did how many and honestly, did you ever contemplate uh taking your own life? Sure. And then early on it was a challenge. Um, to do that, to not kill myself because I was really freaking out about not having a family. I'm sorry to say that most of my family are substance abusers and I don't have any close bonds with any of my siblings that are still alive. My father's 89 years old and 
he's the only one I speak to and I don't have time for that Philadelphia bullshit mentality or that kind of lifestyle. My life has been too hard to be squandering it being a drunk. I haven't had a drink of alcohol wow. in 42 years. What What's the one thing you missed in prison? Is there a food or a, that you really were so happy to be able to enjoy that you enjoy now? Ice cream. Ice cream. And I ain't allowed to eat it no more because it's uh, ultra processed food. And when you have CTE brain injury, you can't have ultra processed food. So yeah, it's funny. The two things that I missed most when I was in prison was bread, really good bread, man. And I missed ice cream. Was it just every day having to go to battle? It was that, was that hard to turn off when you were finally released? Like you knew in prison, like every day you were going to be no, in it's some strange. sort of mental battle, physical battle. Every day you're putting yourself to the test. And yet death row pales in comparison to how hard life has Since been getting for out. me. Since I got out, the 19 years of my freedom have been harder than the 23 years I, I did on death row. I think that's why so many row, people man. go back to prison. They get institu institutionalized. Where yeah. they, they just cannot, they just, you know, they, they, they do better in there than they do out of there. And there's a lot of people like that. Well, if, well, I think also they get conditioned to a world that is totally different. In prison, the three things that will get you killed immediately, if you mess with a man about his family, his religion, or why he's there, yep. you get it? Out here... First three things someone will attack you for are those three things. Right. And that's sick. That's an, it, it's an unforgivable I grew up in, in prison, era. and out here it's just normal. And that's why men can't handle it, because there's no respect of fear that you... Um, in prison, you learn how to mind your own business. You learn how to give the next man respect because you know the consequence of not doing so, and you learn how to have self-respect for yourself. When those men get out of prison and they find a society is a lie, and it's nothing like that, they capitulate, they go crazy, they gotta go back, they gotta reoffend. they can't take it because they're being driven crazy by this notion that they were gonna play a code that's no right. longer there. Yeah, I mean, it makes it makes total sense. It, what? What could what could we do to um because the recidivism rate is astronomical. I mean, I don't know what it is off the top of my head, but it's it's an insane number. Yep. How do we fight that? Well, actually the only way you can fight this is before they go to prison. We need to go back and teach children kindness. If a child is taught kindness in their curriculum, they learn more overall anyway, but they also develop strengths in their personality to make them less likely to go to jail. Once you get someone in the cycle of jails, it's much harder to break it then. We have to actually work towards teaching a curriculum that has a classroom on this and this, Kindness and accepting kindness. Children have this defense mechanism being built up on them from the social media crap 
They don't know how to experience joy and other things unless it's yeah. on a telephone screen. Yeah, I've got an eight-year-old, and I mean, him transitioning into his teenage years is terrifying to me just because of where we are as a society today. Yeah. Like, I mean, and I'm going to shield him for as long as I can, but I mean, there's there's young kids, 10, 12, 11 years old, that come home and commit suicide because they've been cyberbullied. And that scares the hell out of me. Yep. And this is why, Andy, the best thing for you, the best thing for you is to make sure you and him do social-based things. Even taking your child mm -hmm. to, say, a school play or even, like, to a library, something different, that imparts such a huge thing in that child, he then knows there's a different reward system right. outside of the telephone. Right. Yeah. Get it? And that's deep. Yeah, because we don't have social gatherings like that without it being the kids go and sit yeah. next to each other and sit yep. on their phones next to yep. each other. There's no there's no human yep. interaction anymore. So the more time that you Right. And that's why I'm I I really put an effort in with these two girls of mine that we was going to spend as much time outdoors as we could. So I got them into all kind of activity. The best thing is they saw that movie for Bethany Hamilton <laughs> and they wanted to be surfers. So I had these two little English girls out on the Oregon coast and they wanted to be outdoors all the time. And you could see their development changed. They weren't judgmental, attacking of other children. They weren't driven to have a notion of taking sides. I think that that's one really of the cool. things. If, you, if you'll notice all these school shootings we have and all these things, it's never a kid that's involved in extracurricular activities. It's always an outcast. It's always an outcast kid. It's never a kid that's in sports. Yeah. It's never a kid then, that's in FAA that raises animals. It's always the kid that's isolated by himself and right? spends all his time on the web doing stuff. Um, I got a question back to Ted Bundy. Ted Bundy lived in Philadelphia yep. about the same time you did. Or no, no, I guess you'd have been there. Did y'all have any – did, did y'all talk about no, that? No, but he, he – no, he was actually in Washington State uh, most of the t uh, that time before he went to school and all that. I was at, incarcerated in 81, 82, so I never even knew he was from the Philadelphia area. I just met him on death row in Florida and instantly took he's a, a dislike was, to his little bitch ass. He's a strange fucker. See, that's the misnomer. I got news for you. Well, yeah, but he was a nobody in jail, and that's what killed him. See, out here... They play this terrorizing, horrible game. Soon as they hit the penitentiary, which is run by serious men in the gang structures, like the whole Pennsylvania prison society is run by the junior black mafia or the Latin kings. These are the two biggest American groups, you know. Little bitch-ass Teddy would never last five minutes in general population he was glad to be on death row because he knew what was coming his way. That's why all these serial killers act so different once they get in jail. They ain't talking shit no more. They know they're getting their ass whooped on a regular basis. They're paying protection and they're washing somebody's right. goddamn because every, socks. Ted Bundy knows if he goes to general population, there's a bounty on his head. Somebody's Somebody wants the title of being the guy that took out well, Ted Bundy. Well, yeah. Absolutely. And look what happened to Dahmer. He, he got his head beaten flat, didn't he? 
See what I mean? You you don't roll around society and then think you're going to be in general population. Someone's going to pop. And that's why all these sickos who pretend to be these gangsters, they go right to lockup. All the ones, Charles Ng out in California, all them cowards that do all that horrible shit, they want to be protected. But they'll talk shit when the reporters are there and make it, you know, because they know they're not oh, going yeah, to have to. Oh, yeah, because that's there's part no, of their image. There's no consequences. There's no real-world consequences to what they're telling these reporters. What What about in prisons, if we put back in the work farms, like Angola Prison in Louisiana? That's, we had that. Well, see, it's they got them right now. Look, I got news for you, fellas. Our fifth largest industry in America is penology. The penal system is the fifth biggest one. If you go online and you look up big house products, you can buy prison uniforms that are made by prisoners. You can buy buy prison soap, prison trainers. You can buy all kinds of prison products because they have these men working for 13 cents an hour. But that's not going to really affect the psychos because they're on the fringe. Look, we have between six to 17% of the population are psychologically driven sexual predators. You get it? That's not a large number, but then again, against the backdrop of 2 million people, you're talking about 120,000 of these guys. Yeah. That's scary to yeah. think that they're running around that many. We, we, we've got to do something where we don't have so many people go back to prison. We have to do something. In well, our way. the only thing I know, the only thing that works is actually education. They've cut off all the education programs. These guys can't even fill out a goddamn job application. So they've made it different. They're trying to teach them just the basics, how to fill out a job form, how to make it to work on time. Like they literally dumbed it down so much because they recognize like you, Jeff, we got to make an effort to get these guys back into the work, back into society without them going onto the wheel of recidivating, you know, re recommitting crimes. Yep. And it's a shame because the, the states with the best record, Texas actually has a great record of helping out with programs. Did you know that? I didn't know that. No, but I've got some friends Texas of mine. Texas also pays. I got some friends of mine that, that went to prison. They're great guys, big working people, part yeah. of society, great guys. But they all consciously made that decision. Yep. Like, this is it. I'm yep. going to figure out a trade in here. Yep. It's down to the guy. I'm going to, I'm not, I'm done with this. I'm fixing my world. I'm, bull, I'm done now. with this bullshit. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not coming back. Hell, even Texas pay. And if Texas gets it wrong, they'll pay you $80,000 a year for putting you on death row for wrong. There ain't no such thing in Pennsylvania. You know, um, another thing that, <laughs> one of the problems we have with prison is, is it's hard for a kid that go. I didn't grow up in the ghetto. I grew up poor though. And I knew a lot of kids. I wasn't very far from living in a ghetto, but I grew up poor and I grew up with a lot of kids that didn't have shit and they didn't have an uncle that was worth a shit. And they didn't have parents with shit. They've three generations of shit is all they were. Well, when they go and they see somebody selling dope and they're making a thousand dollars a day like, peddling dope, yeah, it's like a disease. What, man. I mean, what the fuck are you going to do? You're going to go get a job, make seven dollars an hour. Right. When you're watching your 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 cousin, he may go to prison four different times, but he's making a thousand dollars a day driving a brand new Cadillac. You know, and it's it's tough. I keep thinking about. I keep thinking about what's happening now too with this fentanyl. Oh, scary. 
I went to Philadelphia and I, I couldn't even walk my dogs. A, a guy came running over to me near the Motel 6. He said, sir, sir, please don't walk your dog over here. I said, why? He said, well, they can give Narcan to a human being. They can't give Narcan to a dog. And these junkies have been over here and they're dropping these packets right. with fentanyl on it. And a man just had his dog die. He said, you got two beautiful dogs. Do me a favor. Walk them in a field somewhere. No humans beings been around because your dogs will lick the packet and that's, die. I was like, oh, my God. crazy, but I hadn't thought about that. You know, now I mean, they got some new shit coming out that's a cross between fentanyl and ketamine or something. One of the, the trank. trank, trank. Yeah, they call trank. it trank. Yeah. Did you know Narcan don't work? Yeah, that's Philadelphia. Narcan don't work on it. I seen them on the street, man. They look yep. like zombies. And Narcan will not work on that. So we're going to thin the herd pretty nope. fast on that deal. Yeah, that that one's going to keep that one's going to keep going. And the shame of it is they keep having this purified methamphetamine come across the border in liquid. Can't even tell what it's in. And it's so powerful now. It only takes one dose for a person to get hooked on this for life. Scary time that we're in. Um, if Scary people time. want your book, we'll start wrapping up here. Where can they find your books? Your you've got a, you've got t-shirts out. Where can they support you? Yeah, so I, I am, my books are on Amazon, and uh, I have a GoFundMe up uh, trying to help me reunite with my wife and children. And basically, I'm just going to be as bold as life, the way God taught me. And I'm going to go forward and, and take this message of neuroplasticity healing and see if I can't get people to not hurt themselves. I have a real good opportunity to get through to people who've had some really tragic things and they believe in me enough to listen to me. I can get them to what change. You know what, what I mean? What is this neuroplasticity what a blessing. Okay, so neuroplasticity is your own brain can help you get over your own PTSD by simply working every day to be polite, listening to music, prayer, interacting with children and animals, and you rewrite all of your own PTSD trauma through a series of just working every day to be utterly polite and putting out this, this reward system in your brain gets hooked on it. So that every time you meet someone, your brain's looking for this reward system and soon that's all you think about. Like I have been on death row for 23 years. I have had people stab me. I tried to commit suicide, all of it. You know, since my release, I haven't had one psychiatric really? counseling session. That is, that is shocking with what you went Not through. Not one. Yep. Because I taught myself how to use my kindness as a strengthening tool to make me bold and strong and self-confident. My kindness makes me uniquely who I am. So as long as no one ever steals your kindness, they can never take from you who you are. When you were stabbed, were you in a fight or did you get jumped? Oh, no. I had a bounty on me, so anybody who knocked me off got 10 grand. So I got stabbed eight different times. One of them was pretty serious by a guy named Ben Porter, who had already served 36 years of a life sentence, and he stabbed me with a, a bed slat that was made out of a metal bed frame, and it went so deep. I had to headbutt him over and over and hold on to it and oh keep the knife God. inside me. And then what, just hold it in until the medics can get to you? 
no, just keep beating on his head with my head. I kept bashing him with my forehead. And then the guards came and beat us both down. But the knife was in my belly and they were stepping on me. So I had to scream at them to get me to roll, let, at least let me roll over. You know what I mean? Why did you have a belly so, on your head? Because the people that thought I killed their family member wanted me to suffer. From the, from the, the rape murder that you were convicted for. They put word yes, out sir. ten grand. Yes, sir. Ten grand, whoever kills me. And that's all that needed to be told. And that went up from the county jail to the penitentiary and haunted me for years. And uh I had a couple of guys try to collect on that bounty, but did they none ever of catch them ever the could. person who did murder and rape that lady? No, sir. But when I got out of prison, if you look up on the Showtime network, there's a movie called After Innocence where I got myself a bullhorn and I went back to the courthouse every Monday to protest how they weren't trying to catch that murderer. And I hate it that to this day, I'm the only person willing to stand that, up for that poor woman. You don't see OJ Simpson out there doing that shit, do you? Mm-mm. Hell no. No, that's not, you're right. Because I used to sit in my cell and I would pray for, for justice yeah, for that woman, yeah, not yeah, myself. You're a good person. I've really enjoyed having you on here. And my friend, I, I pray try for to you. Be. And God bless you, and you're a good story. And I, I, I'm sorry for what the criminal justice system did to you. It's not meant to work that way. I really appreciate this, guys. You, you both know this, Charlie. Yeah, you, you're actually right now helping me be able to go see you my wife and children trip, my friend, this week. And God bless you. And if there's anything else we can do for you ever, please let us know. What a good dude. Man, what a story. Man, what a terrible. Gosh, I'm out of here. Well, I'd, imagine I'd be a, helpless. I'd be a bitter, pissed off son of a bitch when I got out of there forever. Oh, I, yeah. There's no. That's a bad deal. That's what pisses me off. I'm very pro officer and I'm very pro court system, and I think we ought to put people to sleep the next day. And then guys like this year, their story. But it was shitty, shitty police officers that did that. Shitty judge, city. Yes. I mean, from ever, top ever, to bottom. Yep, top to bottom. Let's just hurry up and get through that. We this, got the fourth coming up. We got hot dogs and burgers to make. Well, you don't want to be sitting here. And I'm going to say something that sounds really horrible, but this is what they're thinking. Here's a kid that stole a car, right. on meth, fucked up. You know, fuck him. You know, this, right. you need to get him off the street. He's trouble anyways. And that's a bad way, but that's how they think. Some yeah. of them do. But that was a bad deal. But it just makes me mad that not one officer stood up and said, well, well hold on. Do the math here. This kid can't have been at both places. <clears throat> he might be and not be a good person, and he may be in, needs to be in jail for something. But he didn't murder someone, and someone is getting by with murder. Right. That's the bad thing. Somebody right now is out there, if he's still alive, that done this to this lady and has never, ever paid for his sin. Not ever. Nope. And he will one day, though. Hopefully he's asked for forgiveness, too. All right. Thank you all for listening. We appreciate everything you do for us. Check out our sponsors. It's on to you, Andy. Goodbye. Go check out these sponsors. Go check out... Ducks Unlimited, Double T British Kennels, Dirty Duck Coffee, Stanfield Outfitters, Alpha Outdoor Specialties, Looking Glass Podcast, Lucky Duck, Chin Gear, Gundog Outdoors, Pacific Calls, Dive Bomb Industries, Boss Shot Shells, and Mossberg.